0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Um, Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. And that means that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 to 22. I will be reading from the CSB version. Please follow along in your own Bibles. The passage will also be displayed on the screen. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you, and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that was near his head and set it up as a marker. He poured oil on top of it and named the place Bethel, though previously the city was named Luz. Then Jacob made a vow. If God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and, clo- and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I have set up as a marker will be God's house, and I will give to you a tenth of all that you give me.
1: Uh, God, we do ask that in your kindness you might be opening our eyes to see your word. God, In this moment, as we look at your word in Genesis 28, help each one of us have an encounter with the Lord Jesus. Help us see him for who he is, and help us see what a wonderful thing, God, it is to be found by you. And these things we ask and pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Have you ever wondered uh, why people don't come to church? Have you ever wondered why people don't come to church? I'm not just talking about the kind of non-Christian person who doesn't believe in the things of God. I'm also talking about the everyday Christians. Because when you look at the stats, or any church really, there's a whole heap of people who say we follow Jesus, but who don't come to church. And here's my question, Have have you ever wondered why? I mean yep sure it could be because life is too busy could be because there are other priorities that are there but have you ever thought that many yeah I would suggest many people don't come to church because they don't want to feel judged it could be that feeling that I'm I'm living a life that I know is not right that I'm racked with such guilt and shame over the way that I'm living and church is actually the last place I want to go. Because whether real or imagined, when I walk in, it feels like everyone here sees my sin. And it feels like everyone is judging me for it. So, so why in the world do I want to come to a church if all that greets me are stares of shame? And it's not long to then think, well, if that's how people at church see me, is that how God sees me? If I come to church and I think people see how I live, they see my shame, whether real or imagined, it's easy for me to go, is that how God sees me? And so I run from church, but actually, I'm running from God. Which when you think about it's actually terribly sad, because This and every church ought to be a place of grace. It ought to be a place where my guilt is forgiven. It ought to be that sanctuary where I know if I come, my shame will be covered and my sins are washed away, but so often church doesn't feel that way. And so can I say, if you're someone who is in that situation, if you're Someone who, in your heart of hearts, you know you're running from church, or maybe even running from God, and somehow you happen to be here today. I'm really glad you're here. I'm really, really glad you're here. And I want you to know that, that God loves you more than you could ever imagine. And He has a word for all of us today, but if that's you and you're on the run from God, can I say He has, he, he has almost a bit of a special word for you today. Because in this passage, we find a man who is also running from God. But here's what's crazy about this passage. In this passage, God catches up with him. God catches him. But not in the way that we think. But look with me. Jacob is caught. Jacob is caught. Just think about the life that Jacob has lived so far. Think about the shame and the guilt that he's got to be carrying with him. This is a man who took advantage of his father's disability and old age, and who stole his brother's blessing. And the worst thing of all was that he did all of that whilst hiding behind God. Do you remember? When he lied to his brother, he even used God as divine justification for his sin. He pretty much said, God said it's okay. And now Esau wants to kill him. Jacob is running for his life. He's running to his uncle Laban where he'll hide for a few days until his brother's anger subsides. Yes, Jacob is running from his brother. But actually, Jacob is running from God. Because look at where he runs to in verse 10. He leaves Beersheba and goes toward Haran. Now, we need to think about this. right? In Genesis 12.4, Haran is the place where God saved Abraham out of. It's where Abraham lived before he met the Lord. Or in Joshua 24.2, we find out that Haran is a place full of idols. It's where Abraham worshipped other gods before he started worshipping the Lord. So that's where Jacob is running back to. A life before God a life before his promise, a life before the gospel, a life before Jesus. And isn't that where so many of us run when we're confronted by our own sin? We ironically, tragically run back to the very sins that ensnare us. We run back to our life before we met the Lord. Like a toxic relationship, we keep running back to a life without Jesus. But look at what happens. On the way to Haran, Jacob reaches a certain place and spends the night there because the sun had set. Now, look, at this point in the journey, this certain place is nowhere special. If you fast forward later, you realise, wow, this is Bethel. This is where, this is the house of God, the gate of heaven. Not yet. Don't think about that just yet. Right now, it's just a place. In fact, what makes this place remarkable is that it's so unremarkable. It doesn't yet have a name, it doesn't yet have any significance. It's in the middle of nowhere, stuck between Beersheba and Haran, between God's promise and our past. And it's there that Jacob lies down in the cold, wide open, vulnerable, exposed, and all alone. Some of you here uh, have recently moved out of home for the very first time. You're living by yourself. You don't have parents to cook for you, to clean for you. You're surviving off crappy trestle tables, plastic chairs, and two-minute noodles. And living alone and out of fear, I can bet what you do before you go to bed each night. You walk around the house. You check that the alarm is armed. You check that every blind is closed. You triple lock all the doors ten times. because You're afraid that someone might come in. One of my friends, when he moved out for the first time, even slept with a filleting knife under his pillow just in case someone broke in in the middle of the night. Slight safety hazard for himself. Now, Jacob doesn't have a filleting knife. He has a stone. And he takes that stone and puts it by his head, next to his head, not as a pillow, but as protection, almost as if to strike back at anyone who might attack him in the dead of night. Can you get a sense of how Jacob must be feeling? Alone, exposed, afraid. But for Jacob, there's no alarm, no blinds, no locked doors. I mean, think about it. This is a boy who loved to stay at home and cook with his mum. And now he's sleeping rough with no house, no home, no family. But you've also got to imagine his fear and imagine his regret. Imagine what he's thinking, right? I fought so hard. I did whatever it takes to get whatever I wanted. I, I, I lied, I cheated, I stole, I deceived in order to get God's blessing of a house, a family, a home. And look what I have now. Nothing. How did that work out for me? God's blessing would be that I'd have a wife and many kids and a great land for my home. Now I'm sleeping in the middle of nowhere with absolutely no one. And you've got to wonder if that's a picture of our life without God. A life without protection, without blessing, without love. A life all alone, racked by guilt and burdened by shame. And then in verses 12 to 13, Jacob suddenly has a dream. He sees a stairway with its top reaching the sky and God's angels are going up and down on it. And you know, you might read this and go, "Wow. What what a spectacular dream. How be- I would love a dream like that. How beautiful. How glorious." But for Jacob, this is a nightmare. <laughs> this is the dream where your past finally catches up with you. This is the dream where you finally get caught for everything you've ever done wrong. We're not meant to read angels and go, wow, pretty winged creatures. We're supposed to go, angels are God's warrior messengers. These angels are here to hold Jacob to account. In Zechariah 1, we we see that angels, they patrol the earth, each of them guarding different regions and different lands. But look here. There's not just one or two. There's an army of them. They're everywhere. After lying, cheating, and stealing, Jacob cannot run from the angels of God. And then the most terrifying moment of his nightmare comes. Jacob looks up, and he sees the Lord standing beside him, or literally standing over him. God Almighty has come down the stairway from heaven, and he's standing over this runaway sinner. And he says, I am Yahweh, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the old disabled man whom you deceived. Now, if you're someone who's running from God, this is not a nice dream. This is the nightmare of all nightmares, isn't it? Jacob has been caught by God. It's like we heard just at the beginning of this service Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, under the earth, you are there. You know, they say that the only person you can't run from is yourself. But it's only half true. We cannot run from the ever-present God. And no matter how far we might run, we can never escape ourselves and we can never escape our God. So here's the situation, right? Jacob has lied, has cheated, has stolen, he's deceived, he's fled, and now he's caught. He's caught by God. What do you think God would say? If I were Jacob, if I were on the run from God, I would be expecting God to say something like this. Jacob I have found you and I will judge you I will condemn you I will shame you I will punish you I will reject you I will abandon you I will disown you That that's what I would imagine God would say But look at what he says in verses 13 to 15 something so unexpected He goes I will give you the land on which you're lying. I am with you. I will watch over you. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you. Wow. God catches Jacob in his sin, but instead of coming down that stairway from heaven and standing over Jacob in judgment, God comes down in grace. And after everything that Jacob has done, God still, still repeats his promise. Jacob, you might be all alone in this land, but I'm going to make it your home. You might be all alone with no family or friends around you, but I am with you. You might have no one else to protect you, but I will watch over you. You may have run away from home, but I'm going to bring you home. You might have left me, but I will never leave you. And though you tore your family apart, I will rebuild your family and use it to bless the world. First, can you see, Jacob is caught. He's caught by the grace of God. God comes down to Jacob when Jacob's running away from God. But instead of speaking a word of judgment, God speaks a word of grace. And do you realize that in all of what God promises, in everything that God says, I will, I will, I will, I will, Jacob does nothing. Nothing. This is a man who has been doing whatever it takes to get whatever he wants. But now all he can say, Is nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your grace I cling. You see, you might be so afraid of being found out and caught out for your sin, but can you see it is a beautiful thing to be caught by the grace of God? It is a beautiful thing to be caught by the grace of God. And so in verse 16, Jacob wakes from his dream and says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. What an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Which is ironic. Because as he wakes up and looks around, it's not as if any of Jacob's physical surroundings have changed. He's still in the middle of nowhere. He's still all alone. He's still exposed and vulnerable to attack with that rock in his hand. And yet, in this strange reality inversion, his dream is actually his reality. His dream is more real than his physical experience. And so too is it for us. Our physical experience is actually like a dream compared to our spiritual reality. So often we look around at our lives and we see the mess and the muck we've made of it. And if I judge my life based on my physical experience, based on what I see in my life, I would have no hope at all. But God wants us to open our eyes and to see not a dream, but to see reality itself. That however far we might have run from God, we can meet him at the gate of heaven. Do you see, friends, no matter what you might see in your life, no matter how much of a mess or a mark you've made of it, we are never too far from the long arm of God's grace. I mean, gosh, isn't that why Jesus came? Isn't that how Jesus came? Didn't Jesus come in grace and not in judgment. In John 1, Jesus comes to Nathanael, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He's the anti-Jacob, as it were. And what does Jesus tell him? You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You see, just as God came down that stairway from heaven and stood over Jacob in grace, So Jesus came down from heaven and stands over us in grace. Jesus is the house of God. Jesus is the gate of heaven. Jesus is the one who comes to us, not in judgment, but in grace. And everything that God has promised to Jacob, Jesus promises to you and me. He promises, I am with you always to the end of the age. He promises, no one will snatch you out of my hand. He promises, I will provide for your every need, so don't worry about your life. And he promises, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You see, friends, however far you might have run from God, you can always turn to Jesus, who will catch you in his grace. It is a beautiful thing to be caught by the grace of God. But I want you to see that once Jacob is caught by God's grace, he's then captivated by it. Captivated by it. Verse 17 says, Jacob was afraid. But it's a different sort of fear. It's not the fear that he once had about being caught and found out by God. It's not the fear of judgment, of guilt or shame. No, this is the fear that leads Jacob to say, wow, what an awesome place this is. It's the fear that that, that makes him run toward God, not run away from him. It's the fear that makes his knees knock together in awestruck wonder at God's amazing grace. Peter Adam writes, truly, those who fear God, have nothing else to fear. And that's where Jacob finds himself. Captivated by God's grace, he takes the rock that he would have used for his own protection and he makes it into a marker of God's protection for him. He names the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And in verses 20 to 22, he makes a vow. If God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, the Lord will be my God. The Lord will be my God. Let's be clear. This is not a conditional vow. There is no quid pro quo here. It's not as if Jacob is saying, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. No, after everything that Jacob has experienced, there's no way he's bargaining with God. Instead, he's acknowledging everything that God has already promised. All those ifs directly correspond to specific promises in verses 13 to 15. It's as if Jacob is saying, wow. If God would do all of that for someone like me, how could I not make him my God? It's quite poignant, isn't it? It's quite personal. I mean, do you realize up until this point, Jacob has never called Yahweh my God? He's never owned God for himself. It's always been the God of my father, someone else's God. Back in chapter 27, verse 21, when Jacob deceived his father, this is what he said, The Lord, your God, made it happen for me. Even when God comes down that stairway from heaven and stands over Jacob, he was the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. But he wasn't yet the God of Jacob. But now, in this hopeless place that is the gate of heaven, Jacob has had a personal encounter with the living God. And finally he says, you're mine. For those of us who've grown up in Christian families, it is not enough for Jesus to be the God of our parents. We have to personally experience something of what Jacob experienced. In our heart of hearts and in our lives, we've had to felt felt the, the shock of being caught and the wonder of being captivated by the grace of God. For all of us, we must be able to personally say, wow, if Jesus came down from heaven and caught me in his grace, he can't just be my mum's God. He can't just be my dad's God. He can't just be my church's God. He's got to be mine. And that's why Jacob makes that rock into a marker of God's promise so that every time he looks at it, he can say, Yes, the Lord is my God. Friends, we don't have a rock. We have a cross. And every time we look at that cross, we are looking at the gate of heaven where God gave his son for us. Every time we look at that cross, we're reminded that Jesus came down from heaven not to judge us but to save us. Every time we look at that cross, we remember that Jesus, no, not we. Every time I look at that cross, I remember that Jesus came and caught me in my sin. But he caught me in his grace. He didn't come in judgment. He came in forgiveness. And every time I look at that cross, I've got to be so captivated by that grace. I've got to ask with Jacob, how could I not make him mine? Can I say, sometimes, some of us easily fall into the trap of reading our Bible a bit like an engineering manual. If you study STEM at uni, this is going to be your besetting Bible-reading sin. We read the Bible a bit like an engineering manual, right? We look for explicit words in specific verses, to make empirical points. Unless I can see God said this in these exact words, I will not believe that the Bible actually says it. But that's not how Genesis is written. It's written as a narrative. This is where if you're an artsy person, it'll help you. The Bible is written as, well, the Genesis is written as a narrative, a theological account of historical events in a literary form. So that one more time. Genesis is written as a theological account of historical events in a literary form. It's taking things that really happened, it's presenting them in an artful form in order to tell us something about God. Now think about that. If Genesis is written in an artful form, we can't just analyze the text, we need to feel it. We need to inhabit the story. We need to immerse ourselves in the characters. We need to sense the movement, the the pathos, the emotion. The Bible invites us to feel Jacob's fear of being alone, to share Jacob's shock of being caught by God, and to join in Jacob's wonder at being captivated by his grace. When you read your Bible, don't just ask yourself, what is the Bible saying Ask yourself, what emotions is it trying to engage? What's the tone of this text? What does it want me to feel? Jacob is awestruck at his personal encounter with the Lord. He's absolutely captivated by the grace of God. And the question for us is this. Are we? Are we captivated? by God's amazing grace. I want to speak to three groups of people now, three groups of people who are probably sitting here. Firstly, to those of us who call Jesus our Lord and cross and crown our church. Do you remember? Do you remember what it's like to be caught by God's grace? Do you remember what it's like to feel the weight of your sin? The dread of being exposed, but the wonder of being forgiven? Do you remember what it's like to be running from God, but then to be caught by His grace? I was listening to a podcast recently, and this this person who was on the podcast said, I've been a Christian for about 15 years. And that sounds like a long time, but in the great scheme of things, 15 years is not a long time to be a Christian. And she's right. She's right. But think about it, when you have been a Christian for that long, or grown up in church, it is easy to forget, isn't it? It is easy to forget the grace of God. It's easy to forget that sense of being captivated by His grace. Because when we forget that sense of being caught by God's grace, we actually stop being captivated by it. Grace becomes a truth in our heads, but not a joy in our heart. And here's what's happened, here's what happens. When grace becomes a truth in our heads, not a joy in our hearts, we actually stop extending grace to others, especially those who are running from God, like we once were. We become those judgmental Christians who look down upon people struggling with sin, who heap shame upon shame. And we turn a place of grace into a house of guilt. And if that's what we become, and if that's what churches become, it's no wonder that people don't want to go to church. But what if? What if we were so captivated by God's grace that grace would pour out of our hearts and welcome the sinner home? What if people who are running from God, driven by guilt, burdened by shame, could come to church, hear the gospel, see the cross, and feel God's grace through us and say, wow, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Wouldn't that be amazing? Last week, we talked about the importance of trusting God enough to do God's will in God's way. And here's the question that I want all of you to help me with, because I'm still struggling and figuring out how to do this. How, as a church, do we pursue holiness and godliness, and yet in a way that doesn't drive away the sinner who is running from God? It's very easy to pursue holiness and godliness with legalism. It's much harder to pursue holiness and godliness in a way that extends grace. I would love our church to be a place that sets godliness standards for our holiness and yet extends the godly grace of the gospel for the runaway sinner. Isn't that something for us to aspire to? Wouldn't that be wonderful if people could come here and go, wow, there's a picture of a gospel community. There's a picture of holiness and godliness. There's a picture I'd love to aspire to. And there are people who will walk with me, who won't judge me, who will love me, who will show me that God himself stands over me, not in judgment, but in grace. Secondly, to those of us here who are running from God, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you've done. And I could never presume to know how you feel. But I do know this. It is a beautiful thing to be caught by the grace of God. It's a beautiful thing. Almost all of us here have that one sin, that one part of our life that that we just so fear people will discover. That one thing in our past that if it were exposed or revealed would drive us away with shame. And I think one of the reasons I feel so afraid of sharing those parts of our lives, understandably, is we, we don't know what people will say. What if they knew? What would they do to me? How would they respond to me? Even my closest friend, if they knew what I really did, if they could see into my heart and know what I think, what I feel, what I imagine, there's no way that they would still accept me. I don't know what they'd say. We do know what God would say. I am with you. And will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. You see, we're so afraid at what God might say about our sin. But we know what He'd say I forgive you. You see, at least the one prayer that God will always answer with a yes is please forgive me. So please stop running. It's got to be so exhausting and tiring. If you come home to Jesus, he will forgive everything you've ever done and he will provide for you in all the ways you will ever need. He did it for Jacob. He'll do it for you. You just have to stop running and to let yourself be caught by the grace of God. Finally, to those of you who are here and might not be followers of Jesus, a lot of people seem to think that the God of the Old Testament is full of judgment, and then Jesus came in the New Testament and is full of love. But can you see that grace has been in the Bible since the very beginning? That the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and He is a God of grace. In fact, from the Old Testament Testament to the New, God's grace only gets greater. And for all who turn to him, God promises to come in grace and forgive our every sin. In John 3.17, Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Did you get that? All of us already sit under God's judgment. All of us are already on the run from God. But if we believe in His Son, we will be caught not by God's judgment. We'll be caught by His grace. It really is a beautiful thing to be caught by the grace of God. In a moment, I'm going to invite you guys to stand. And we're going to sing, All I Have is Christ. But I want you to realize that as we sing these lyrics, these lyrics could easily be sung by Jacob himself. Because Jacob's story is our story, isn't it? I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you hadn't loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you, God, looked upon my helpless state, and you led me to the cross. And there at the cross... I beheld, God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath deserved for me. And now, all I know is grace. Let me pray. God, some of us have been on the run from you for so long. And so many of us are so afraid, God, of what you might say if you were to catch us out and see our sin. But God, we know what you'll say. It's what you told Jacob. It's that you come to us in grace and forgiveness when we don't deserve a shred of it at all. Where all we ever deserved was judgment. You came and poured out grace upon grace upon grace. That's all we know now, God. That's all we want. It's all we need. It's all we have. We have Jesus. What a beautiful thing it is, God, for us to be caught by your amazing grace. And so we sing praises to you, captivated by that grace, singing in awestruck wonder at your love for us.
0: For Jesus' sake. Amen.